Namaste. I have a very special guest today, Minakshi Jain, a person I have known for two decades. I haven't been in contact uh, with you for many years now. Yeah. And I thought it's a good time to catch up. Thank you. Uh, I regard her as one of the best scholars in history and political matters concerning India. And we have one thing in common. We both have uh, critiqued the work of leftist uh, people in India. Yes. And they either fight us or ignore us or call us names and so on. <laughs> so we compare notes on that later on. But first, I just wanted to say uh, welcome. Thank this you. is a good opportunity. And from now on, we should stay in touch more often. Thank you. So you were a professor of physics, a professor of history and political science mm. in Delhi University. Yeah. I okay. was a reader. Okay, reader. Mm. So during the era of the left, that mm. is the whole Irfan Habib and mm. Ramila Thapar, these kind of people. Mm. So how did you feel about that era in terms of the prevailing you know, scholarship that was popular at that time? See, their stranglehold on Indian academia was really complete. Uh, they controlled all the funding agencies and all the students who want to do research had to do research under them and from their point of view. So it was very difficult for a person who did not share their ideology or way of thinking to uh, you know, make a mark as a historian or as a scholar. Uh, as I said, all the funding agencies were under their control. So if you wanted to chart out your own path, it was a very lonely path and uh, you were just on your own. So, did, is Indira Gandhi who, one who caused all this? When, when did this happen? Actually, this started when Indira, when the Congress party uh, became a minority government. And they needed coalition partners, CPI. And they chose the CPI. Yeah. And the left is a very astute as far as furthering their ideological position is concerned. So, they asked for one ministry and that was the education ministry. And probably the Congress did not realize the importance of this ministry or they endorsed the viewpoint of the left on Indian history. And so this ministry was handed over to Professor Nurul Hassan. So the first thing that uh, Nurul Hassan did with his team was to block out or delegitimize, let me put it like that, eminent historians, I mean right is not the right word, but who were non-left. So like give me examples of who they so, uh, there Majumdar. was R.C. Majumda, Jadunath Sarkar. Now, Jadunath Sarkar had done a fantastic empirical study of the Mughal Empire. And, you know, uh, facts speak for themselves. So, uh, the left, they tried to belittle his view of Indian history. And you will be surprised to know that recently a biography of Jadunath Sarkar has been written. And in that biography, the scholar he is astonished to note that Infan Habib in his book Agrarian System of Mughal India does not refer to Jadunath Sarkar even once. Mm. So this is a kind of completely sort of ignoring. You know, otherwise they have to deal. You just with. wipe people out of the pages of so history. So was Nehrul Hussain from CPI, or they, he was just a he was a left leftist person, maybe yes. not a uh, party member. No, he was a card holding man. He was a card holding man. Yes, according to what I know. Mm. Mm. So then uh, your, uh, but you survived, I mean you, yeah. you managed and to. I survived for the simple reason that I didn't want any patronage from anyone. I was not looking for a job. I had a small job which was enough to see me through. Was it easy though to get your papers in? No, not but easy. I never tried. I never tried because uh, getting my books published was such a headache. 
uh, every book of mine, uh, I think I've made a notable contribution to the subjects on which I've written. But every book of mine was rejected by every publisher because the manuscript would go to left scholars. This is the thing. People don't realize it. You know, you, I've, I, I know this. Mm -hmm. So you, no matter which publisher you go to, yeah. they have to give it to for reviews. Yes. And the people who are known, known to be important, whether they are good scholars or not, are, tend to be these kind of people. And so the review goes to such a person and they kill the book. And for example, uh, one book, that was a very detailed study on Hindu-Muslim relations in the medieval period. Uh, that was sent to a reviewer and uh, the reviewer said this is a very serious work and it takes note of everything that has been written on the subject. But I would advise a publisher to write, it is a Hindu view of Hindu-Muslim relations. So naturally the publisher got frightened and he said, I'm very sorry but I cannot publish it because it says Hindu view. So who are the main publishers at the time? Must be Oxford University Press? Well, I don't want to name anybody, okay. right. but I tried four publishers for four books and uh, every uh, person who the book manuscript was sent to said it's a very serious work, but it uh, portrays just one point of view. So it was rejected. Uh, in fact, on Ayodhya, uh, my manuscript was rejected by four publishing houses and it was only the intervention of Indian archaeologists who have been so actively involved in excavating that site, they actually saw it through. So tell me now, what are the books you are doing now in recent years? Uh, well, the books that I am doing, they are already out. I have done a three volume study on uh, the travelers to India, the India they saw. It's an account of foreign travelers to, to India, India Which from period? the mid 8th to the mid 19th century. And where did they come from? Uh, they came from Europe, they came from China, Far East and uh, the Muslim world, many of them in the mid, uh, uh, from the 10th century onward, there were a lot of Arab writers, Persian writers. So it's a whole gamut of... And the sources are where? Uh, the sources are, mostly I was able to tap uh, the works that had been translated into English. Are they lying in India or somewhere else? They're all over. All over? They're all over. So you had to go collect from various yes, libraries? Yes. Very interesting. And what would surprise people or what is startling, new, yeah, exciting? The, in the the, what would surprise people is that almost all accounts were uh, full of awe at what they saw in India. Uh, the economic, uh, you know, the vitality, the, the place of women in society was a real eye-opener to these people. And uh, in fact, one uh, Italian uh, nobleman, uh, his name was Petra Della Vella, he came to India and he came first to the south and when he came to the south, uh, he had a Dubash. Dubash means a person who interprets for him. Mm. So uh, he had come from Iran where he had interviewed the Shah of Iran. Mm. And after coming from Iran, he came to South India where the matrilineal society was prevalent. And he says, he goes to a village and he says, I want to see the ruler of this village, this area. So they say the ruler is a woman. And she is not at home right now. She has gone to her field because she is supervising the digging of a trench. So he goes to that field and there he sees this woman coming along. And he writes over there, she is dressed like a kitchen maid. And no slippers. And he says, when I started talking to her, I found her as wise as the Shah of Iran whom I had interviewed some time back. And the questions that she asks him and the awareness. And so this... Uh, a representation that we get of women's petri in South India, it's an eye-opener. So many things they write about the caste system which is very different from 
the way we interpret the caste system. And uh, if I can give one example, there was an English collector in Madras. And in those days, you know, we had what is part period? This is the 18th century. Okay. So this uh, the earlier account was about 17th, 16th, this is the 18th century. So there is this English collector of Madras. He wants to go from Madras to another village, which is a few hundred miles away. And so he has the Brahmins, I mean, he has people, palki bearers. He will sit on the palki because he didn't want to go horse riding all that distance. So he sits uh, on the palki and the palki bearers take him to that village. When he arrives at that village, the palki bearers are full of mud from top to bottom. And he gets off the palki and he's surprised that nobody in the village is even looking at him. He's the collector and everybody is doing pranam to the palki bearers. And then he realizes that these palki bearers are Brahmins, the traditional custodians of Indian tradition and knowledge system and how much reverence they arouse in society even though now political power or no power is in their hand. So these are very, very interesting instances that I came to. I have a copy of your volumes, by the way. I haven't read it, I just got it. You cannot read it at one yeah. go. It's like a dictionary. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so things that will startle people uh, should be the subject of some kind of a panel. Yes. Some kind of a Absolutely. conference yes. on what, uh, the, what we learn from original sources of foreign travelers Unfiltered through any by any unfiltered ideological by scholars. scholars. Yeah. Uh, how the some what are some of the discoveries we make this way, which yes. uh, which will surprise people? Yeah, absolutely. Because it will contradict what uh, yes. we, we think. Today. Yes. Yes. I think this should be a topic. This we, is a I very would, it's I, a huh? eye opener. I would like to. We'll, yes. we'll, we'll do do something like yes. this together. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a good one. Mm. So then then you also done. You're known for Ayodhya work. Yes. So. Now, that's a very controversial subject mm. and it takes courage to take on that. Mm. Uh, you've done very well. Uh, so, tell me your work, what it reveals. See, uh, actually, uh, I did not know anything about the Ayodhya dispute. I just had an emotional reaction to the controversy when it broke out. I started uh, studying this subject sometime after the Allahabad High Court delivered its judgment. Soon after that, uh, somebody gave me a pamphlet which was published by the Aligarh Historians Forum. It was mainly written by Irfan Habib. And that booklet was a total indictment of the Allahabad High Court judgment. Irfan Habib, for those who don't know, is one of the, the preeminent leftist uh, scholars yes. who's devastated and tried to and tried to discard and dismiss and reject every Hindu point of view or, you know, main, I would say the true point of view. But on With a very slanted ideological Yeah, but I would basis. just like to uh, say some things on Ayodhya. So when I read this, he said that the Supreme Court is going to overturn this judgment. I said, my goodness, is it possible for a court in India to give such a faulty judgment? That compelled me to read the 5,000 page judgment. And when I read the judgment, it was a real eye-opener for me. But I want what I want to say on Ayodhya, Every point that was, uh, you know, uh, trumpeted by left historians was found to be faulty. By the court? By me and oh. by the court also. Okay. By the court, obviously the court did not accept so that point of view. So give me some major things they said which are wrong. Alright. So, uh, I'll just, uh, uh, I can give many, many examples. Uh, but uh, just for the view of the readers, they said that the Ayodhya dispute was manufactured by the British in the 19th century as part of their policy of divide and rule. And they said that there is no evidence of any temple at that site before that. 
and they said drum worship itself was a very late phenomena it was an 18th 19th century affair now it is one of those ironies of history that documents that were wholly discrediting the left point of view had survived by chance in the fezabad district court because uh, uh, you know the british started ruling over uh, avadh in 1858 after the great mutiny so from 1858 onwards all disputes on ayodhya they the record was kept in the fezabad district court and it's amazing that those documents survived unharmed for 150 years so the first document which we have from ayodhya is 1858 it is an fir filed by the thanedar of avadh hmm. and this thanedar is filing an fir that you know 25 six have got into babri masjid and they have started havan and puja so two day so this one paper small little paper it has survived from 1858 till 2000 whatever then immediately two days later the muttawalli that is the superintendent of babri masjid he also files a case in the fezabad court in which he says that you know these six have entered and they are doing havan and puja and with koila charcoal they have written ram ram all over the walls of the masjid and he also says that before it, this period before this incident the hindus were already in control of the compound of babri masjid where they which they regarded as janamsthan and they were already there that was already in their possession but now the inside area and the outside area both the areas are open to them so the alabad high court regarded this as a very very important uh, fact bearing on the case that there is a muslim source which says that from 1858 the hindus are inside and outside the court excellent so what else was so this is a big uh, defeat for the left yes so from 1858 till 1949 uh, till the idol was placed inside the babri masjid there are so many court cases where the hindus and muslims are fighting and i'll just give you one example uh, that uh, i think it's in 1888 that the babri masjid matawalli he files a case in court and he says that you know uh, up till now at the time of ram navmi and kartik mela uh, we uh, the hindus used to set up shops prashad shops uh, flower shops fruit shops inside babri masjid uh, because you know so many people would come and they would make a sale and the agreement was that we would share the proceeds of the sale between the babri masjid what year is that about 1888 okay ha huh. the exact year is there in my book So he said, this year, the mahants of the Janamsthan they have unilaterally changed the sharing basis without consulting us. So please, he tells the uh, British authorities, please uh, reinstate the old sharing basis that is fifty-fifty. So, so these are some very startling things. So, what do the Muslim sources say? Now uh, there are two recent works that have been published, which uh, uh, people interested in the Yodhya dispute should be aware of. One is the autobiography of K. K. Muhammad. He was an archaeologist with the ASI, and he was he has said that there was a very uh, serious thinking among the Muslims uh, that let us hand over this site when when the controversy broke out. Okay, around eighteen 
1989. That controversy, not the recent. Okay. 1989. Right. Okay. Oh, 1989. Okay. So he said there was a strong thinking among the Muslims that let us hand over this site to the Hindus because it's of so much significance to them. But he says that a group of left historians convinced them that you have a very strong case, don't. So it's the leftists who created a rift between Hindus and Muslims and Muslim says, because they were ready to sort Yes, it out. and he says that they prevented an amicable solution to this problem. Uh, the other account that has been published recently is by Kishore Kunal. He was the officer on special duty under the Prime Ministers uh, VP Singh and Chandrasekhar. And he has also provided a lot of in, in, uh, inside account of how the left misled on so many issues. But uh, going back to the medieval sources, there is no medieval source that either the left has been able to cite mm -hmm. or I have been able to find which says that Babri Masjid was built on virgin land. All medieval sources very honestly and candidly admit that the Ram temple was demolished and a uh, masjid erected on that site. References to Ayodhya as the Janam Bhumi of Ram are there in so many Persian sources. Persian sources? Yes. What era? What so, period? Uh, from beginning from Abul Fazl, that mm -hmm. is 16th century. So Abul Fazl also writes that Ayodhya mm -hmm. is sacred because it is the holy place of the birth of Ram. Then uh, in 1600, Akbar had given some six bighas of land to Hanuman Tila to build whatever they wanted to build there. Uh, that uh, grant had to be renewed in about 1723. So the person who, the scribe, who has to write that renew, uh, renewal of the grant, he writes that, you know, this grant is being renewed, it was given by Akbar, and now it is being renewed, and I, the scribe of this grant, am writing this from the Janam Bhumi of Ram. This is a Persian document mm -hmm. which says that it is, he is writing it from the Janam Bhumi of Ram. Then the Mutawalli of Babri Masjid, who uh, I had mentioned earlier, he writes, he sends two petitions to the British. In both the petitions, he says, Masjid e Janam Sthan. Mm -hmm. So he says, I am the Muttaballi of Masjid e Janam Sthan. So why should Masjid have the name Janam Sthan? Right. And then there are so many accounts, histories that were written by Muslims in the 18th century, which all refer to this. And uh, there is an, uh, another, uh, this is not a Muslim account, but if I can just mention it. There was uh, a report written by uh, Muhammad Shoaib, I think his name is. And he uh, wrote on the inscriptions that he found in Babri Masjid. And he mentioned three inscriptions. And he says that one inscription said that this masjid is built on the site of a Ram temple. Now, uh, uh, over there it says. That. Yeah, but the point is nobody else has seen that inscription. So when was it removed? And why was this report not made public for 100 years? Right. Now you said there's also a controversy about one uh, inscription. Yes. Which uh, the, the left says was fraudulently placed and all yeah. that. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, on 6 December 1992, when Babri Masjid was demolished, a big inscription, 5 feet by 2 feet, was recovered from the walls of the Masjid. And that inscription was deciphered on the court orders, on the Allahabad High Court orders, 
by the epigraphy department of ASI. And that inscription said this is a Vishnuhari temple and it gave all the details of the temple, who built it, when it was built. So this was clinching proof, if you wanted clinching proof, that the temple was there. But left historians and especially Irfan Habib, they said this inscription was not recovered from the debris of Papri Masjid. They said that actually this inscription, which we call Vishnuhari inscription, was stolen from Lucknow Museum and planted over there. So the legitimate, legitimate question that arises is that at that time there were thousands of people over there and there was the media. Who, how was it possible to bring in that inscription? And when was it stolen from Lucknow Museum? So all this time, uh, Professor Habib has been insisting that this inscription was stolen from Lucknow Universe, uh, Museum. But what has happened now is that Kishore Kunal, being a very influential person in the PMO, he actually reached Lucknow Museum and he got a photograph of that inscription. And he also managed to see the diary entries of Lucknow Museum, which said that this inscription was placed in Lucknow Museum in 1953 and it describes the inscription. So this inscription's photograph, which, it, which is there in Lucknow Museum, is actually the inscription mm -hmm. from another temple, that is the Tritaka Thakur temple. And so therefore it does not match this. So it doesn't match at all. But the point is that one would imagine that after such a development, the left historians would immediately respond to this. Right. Because for two decades you have been saying that the Vishnu Hari inscription is a plant and is stolen. But now when evidence has been produced which shows that it was not stolen, you should respond. But uh, my own experience is that uh, all the facts that I have been able to look at, every one of those facts negates the viewpoint of left historians. But they have never responded to these developments. So they just ignore? They kill by silence. In my book, I, uh, my book is very, very critical of the left historians. I have one chapter which uh, takes excerpts from their depositions in Allahabad High Court. And they show that these people were totally ignorant of even the basics of history. So, I mean, if anyone, I mean, anyone would be really embarrassed if this was such an exposure of them. So, is Irfan Habib, because his name comes up, is he the main culprit or is the whole gang of them? See, the four people, uh, Irfan Habib, uh, R.S. Sharma, Romela Thapar, D.N. Jha, Suraj Bhan and Mandal. These are the six people who were in the forefront. Uh, most of them have passed away. Uh, Irfan Habib, uh, Romila Thapar, uh, they, are, they are around. Yeah. They are around. Uh, but uh, what I feel is that uh, Irfan Habib still remains the most active. Excellent. Now you also did some work on Sati. Yeah. So tell but us. can I just say something please. more about this? Yes, please. Uh, what is the redeeming feature okay. uh, in this situation is, according to me, that the younger, the next generation of left historians does not have the stomach for this kind of fight. So they are focusing their research on non-controversial issues. Mm. So in a fundamental sense, I feel that the battle is actually won. But not in the terms of the actual physical site. No, not the physical site, but there will be no one among the next generation who has the tenacity. Among the scholar types. Um, among but the now scholars. the communities are, not, yes, it's become yes. a prestige issue. Prestige and issue. And it's a matter of face saving. Yes. yes. But I'm saying among academics, 
the younger next generation doesn't have the tenacity and the courage of people like Irfan Habib, Arish Sharma and uh, Romila Thapar to carry this ideological battle forward. They want to play it safe. That is my reading of the situation. So, yeah, it's a, now, now the thing is the scholars have done their mischief yes. and they turned the in, into a fight with the communities. Yes. And now even though they fade, fade away, yes. the communities are not going to be able to move past it yes, quickly. Yes, because they were out so many passions. Yeah, and, and uh, it's a political issue, they'll yes. lose vote and whatnot. And all yes. So, yes. tell us about the Sati book you've done. Yeah, that is uh, a very interesting book. And uh, everyone has heard of Sati. You don't have to explain what is Sati because it's drilled into our mind that one of the social reforms of Lord William Bentick is the abolition of Sati. When I began to study the subject, I looked uh, for inscriptional evidence of Sati, sculptural evidence of Sati and eyewitness accounts of Sati. So the first eyewitness account of Sati is when Alexander the Great was returning back home. He's not great by the way. Alexander. Alexander the Greek. Oh, Alexander the Greek. I stand corrected. Yeah. So when he was returning home, then one of his contingents had an Indian general, Shashigupt. Shashigupt died. And then suddenly the Greek soldiers are astonished to see that his two widows come and they are fighting among themselves about who should emulate with him. That is the first recorded eyewitness account of Sati. After that, the next evidence which I was able to see is the 5th century AD from Madhya Pradesh and Ibn Battuta. So the actual instances of Sati where people say we saw it were very few. But what happens in the, you know, when uh, the new route to India is discovered by Vasco de Gama and a lot of foreign travellers start coming to India and they start writing about India because there is a demand in Europe to know about India. So they write travelogues and they feel that, you know, uh, Sati is one of the exotic practices of India. So we must include that in our accounts. But when you examine the accounts of these European travellers, they write in the same words. They reproduce each other's account. And the actual number who has seen those instances of Sati is very few. And you're not, you're not able to tell which area of India. So the whole myth is created. But it was all very reasonable, within reasonable limits. Suddenly, uh, what happens in the 18th, 19th century, the situation changes. The East India Company, they become masters of Bengal. And they are very clear that they have come to India to make money, not to spread, you know, civilization. So at that time, uh, the missionaries, they are not allowed to enter British territory. And if you come, then you are sent back on the next ship. So the British, uh, the missionaries, they want to tell parliament that, you know, uh, India is a land of evil customs. Yeah, we are needed. To and we are very much needed over there. Yeah. So they concoct figures of thousands, 50,000, 1 lakh women. All sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Emulating. But the interesting thing is that these accounts only come from Bengal. And Bengal does not have a tradition of Sati. Which is in Rajasthan. Sati and Johar are basically in Rajasthan. So, the actual empirical evidence would show it's in Rajasthan, but the people, British in Bengal were making it up. Yeah, and uh, I just want to say that after independence, there have been about 40 cases of Sati, around 40 cases. In, uh, in, where, where? in India. All over India. All over India. And 
two thirds of them are in Rajasthan and none in Bengal. So, you know, it is amazing that uh, we are supposed to believe that the moment uh, Bentik abolished Sati by a stroke of a pen, from next day in Bengal, Sati stopped. See, I want my viewers to understand, a lot of people think that uh, all this colonization was about Christianity, that is absolutely false. Uh, East India Company did not want Christian missionaries to come and interfere with their cash cow. Yes. They didn't want the missionaries to come and disrupt this huge money machine that they had yes. created in India. So actually the East India Company were, was against the missionaries, there was a clash between them and in the British Parliament they were taking opposite sides. East India Company always arguing that if the missionaries come, there may be a revolt or something. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and it will disrupt the cash flow. Yes. The missionaries had to then argue that we are needed because there is some savagery going on. Yeah. Right? And in fact, the <clears throat> early uh, officials of the East India Company, uh, when they came to India, they were full of admiration <clears throat> of the Indian customs and right. institutions. Right. And in fact, uh, they said that, you know, we should not bring in uh, British institutions in India. Their institutions are neglected. They need to be revived. But they are understood by the people and they're best for them. Because they wanted to basically just mint money yeah. and let the society continue and not but, bother. But that was one point. But there was a deep appreciation of Indian civilization before the coming of Islam. But then Macaulay changed it. Yes. Early 1800s. Yeah. 18, 20, there was a 30s. group, the Anglicists. Yeah, but you know, even there it's very interesting. Hmm. Before the famous Macaulay Minute, yes. it was Ram Mohan Roy. I don't know why they call him Raja. Though I guess he was a sellout, sellout to the British. So maybe they, but I think I consider him a villain in my eyes. Ram Mohan Roy writes to the British that he wants the benefit to them to bring British education to upgrade Indian India. So this whole idea of bringing English and British style education and getting rid of. Uh, our own system was something that he initiated and then comes the Macaulay Minute. And the British in Parliament, in fact, Edmund Burke, mm. he said that we cannot take the oak from the banks of the Thames River and plant it along the Ganga. Right. So, you know, they, their institutions are serving their needs very well. Right. So, let us revive those institutions. Right. So, the very strong group uh, in the British Parliament and among the British officials in India <coughs> saying that we should restore their institutions. And it's also very interesting, the conservatives were interested in leaving it alone. Yes. It's the liberals who yes. wanted to mess with it. Yes, we absolutely. think that the liberals are more uh, easy to deal with and they are on our side and all that. But actually it's the liberals who had this huge idea of human rights, John Stuart Mill yes. being the leader of the pack, uh, considered the head of uh, liberalism movement. Uh, he was, he and others, they were the ones who wanted to tamper with the Indian society more. Actually, the evangelicals, that is the people who wanted to Christianize mm -hmm. India and the utilitarians, yes. which means John Mill and John Stuart Mill, right. they allied together. Yes. They so, the alliance of Christian missionaries and the, what we would today call the liberal left, that alliance has been there since mid-1800s. So, the alliance today also of those people is not a coincidence. Isn't that interesting? Yes, yeah. interesting. And, and f in fact, the conservatives who just want to make money, they were just basically capitalists who want to make money. Yeah. Uh, they were not interested in all this stuff. No. That's no. Very interesting. And appreciative of India. Yeah, we're appreciative of India. We have a wrong impression that, uh, that the East India Company was all evangelism. That's, a, that's, fact, a, that's because our people are not well read. Yeah. 
and you know you make a fool of yourself if you make a statement like that. In fact, H.H. Uh, Wilson, uh, uh, when he went back as the first Bowdoin professor at Oxford, he used to keep in touch with uh, uh, Sen. I forget his first name. He was uh, Keshav uh, Sen's great uh, grandfather, mm. and he said that you know continue the demand for Sanskrit <clears throat> because your nationality, your identity is linked with Sanskrit and you do everything that you can to frustrate this movement for English education. So, you know, we have to understand a lot of things we blame on the left, it is our own stupid people who demand it and bring it in. Yes. Because, so this post-colonial also because yes. a bunch of idiots thought that they'll become important and become yeah. Gora Sahabs yeah. and uh, the next best thing to yes. being a white man is to think like a white man. Yeah. So, it is our people who bring them in often. But the uh, encouraging uh, sign is that we are now getting the capacity, the confidence and mm -hmm. the determination to set at least part of our historical narrative correct. So now, shall I tell you about my new project? Oh, tell me about the new project. So this is an absolutely fascinating uh, project, at least for me. Uh, you know, the left historians, beginning with Muhammad Habib and continuing all the way down, Romila Thapar, etc. Uh, one important strand of their writing is to underplay iconoclasm. And you know, they try to minimize the extent which means the Christian and Islamic, uh, you know, habit and uh, ideology to smash idols. Yes. That's what it means. So breaking uh, idols, burning idols, stealing yes. idols. So they have tried murtis. to underplay this. Yeah. And in this exercise, uh, several Western historians have also uh, endorsed their point of view. And I mentioned Richard Eaton. Uh, he wrote an article, "Temple mm -hmm. Destruction and Indo-Muslim States." in which he said over a thousand years at best 80 temples were destroyed and two others Richard Davis who wrote a book Lives of Indian Images in which he said that you know before the Turks came this was the already the established practice in India and the Turks were only follow, following established practices and then uh, Sheldon Pollock among others. So uh, I uh, you know started examining this and I said that in most of their sources and most of the sources they cite, there is the Hindu sources are mostly missing. After all, if so much, so much havoc was being done to the Hindus, there must have been some record of it somewhere. The his, Hindus may not have written it as modern historians, but they would have recorded their experience somewhere. And I started uh, looking for that evidence. And then I thought, then I discovered that a better way to tackle this subject is to find out what happened to the icon, the statue, the murti. Mm. Because the temples were huge structures. It was not possible to protect them. Mm. But the murtis could be protected. Right. So was an attempt made to protect the image, right. the murti. And uh, I found some scholars have done work on this, but I found how carefully the Hindus tried to protect their deities and what extent they went to to protect them. And so many centuries later, they tried to reinstate the images in those very temples. Mm. Now, for example, there was a Mahalakshmi temple in Kolapur. 
and that was a, a temple which was built around the 9th century but there is evidence of uh, Shakti, Mata, Mother Goddess being worshipped at that site earlier. So suddenly when these uh, you know attacks on the south begin then we find that the image is not there in the temple and the temple begins to be used as an office of the local administration etc and the image has gone. Then Shambhaji too, he was the ruler of Kolapur and you know many kings used to come to that site to the temple and they left inscriptions that we've come here paid respect to Mahalakshmi and given a grant and all so those inscriptions are there on the temple walls. So this Sambhaji second of Kolapur, uh, he says that you know uh, now we are in a position to re reinstate the idol and they start looking for the idol and they find it in the house of a devotee and then the image is reinstated in that temple and it continues to be worshipped over there today. So when you say that the Hindus did not record their so-called trauma over temple destruction because they say so-called, they say it was engineered by the British because they did not uh, want the Hindus and Muslims to live as one community. But the point is that from whatever evidence is available to us, we have to know how to look for it. A counter narrative can be prepared and this is what I am trying to do as many temples as I can get evidence of to find out what happened to the image. When, but, but when they say uh, one, it was a practice of Hindu kings to also invade temples mm. and they would take the, icon, the image, the, the murti, the implication that they want you to have is that they were destroying yes. images but actually they were re relocating it, taking possession of it and making their own temple in honor of it. Right? And huge temples. Huge temples. And in any case it was hardly half a dozen cases. Right. After that you can't… It is more a theft of Murti than a destruction of it's the It's an honor. It's an honor. That you also regard that Murti as so… So important. Venerable. You rather have it. Yeah. Rather so venerable. Right. And having so much spiritual power. Right. But in the other case that you know the Murti is put on the steps of the masjid or wherever and you trample upon and it Kutub and Minar, I've seen this. I've so seen it is uh, very uh, academically improper to equate the two as if there's no difference between. So you've done some very groundbreaking, controversial, well, trying to change the discourse in a very strategic way. I, I, I commend know. you for that. Thank you so much. Now I want to talk to you about my issues. I have done, uh, I have taken on three kinds of opponents. First was Western scholars uh, in, on their home turf. And then the Indian left, which is supporting them, mm. and in fact uh, the two working very together. Working together. Now I'm finding a huge problem with the Hindu intellectuals. Yes. I'm finding there's jealousy. Their standard is not necessarily that good. There, if you do appear like we are having these conferences, mm. and you know a lot of people want to get in and give opinions, outbursts, uh, not I mean lack of rigor. So I'm finding that there's a large community of these people who go to some melons and manthans and. Uh, conclaves but that really don't have a whole lot of research done and it's more like uh, uh, op-eds full of emotion. Uh, absolutely agree. Uh, with you agree you. with that? Absolutely agree. Uh, you know uh, many times uh, when I started doing research and I would uh, you know I would meet some western scholars and they would say that you are so agitated about our writing and the left writing please give us the counter literature too which we can read. Exactly. And there is no counter literature. Exactly. What has happened is that among the Hindu uh, so-called intellectuals, slogans have taken the place of 
and you know, and you know the the new government hasn't helped in that regard. And I mean, uh, I'm sorry. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, because with you. I'm I'm finding that. Uh, old uh, the old guard and people who have been very loyal to the party or loyal to some politician they get these kinds of posts yes. and they actually their their standard of discourse is quite shoddy and uh, what is surprising is that all these decades uh, a movement which calls itself a cultural movement uh, has not done any homework mm. on any topic that is in dispute they don't. Uh, they, they we have to turn to the left historians because they have done work on that right. topic. So and it's people like you and me who are freelancers. We are, we are freelancers. We are not. It's not like the Hindu organizations have helped us. No, not at and all. I got zero help from anyone. It is a tremendous weakness of the Hindu movement that they have not produced uh, a body of work which. Well, they their point of the view. body of work would come if they are good scholars. So they but have not, not produced scholars. So, and, not, no, and see, the interesting thing is, scholarship is long gestation. Yes. You yes, know, yes. scholarship is not that. Okay, let's have a uh, let's have a event uh, and uh, let's call this guy, that guy. Yeah. See, there are a lot of people who hang around these places. Yeah. One mailer to the next. Yes. And they are really not producing anything. Absolutely. I mean, see, the point is that the desire to do research has to come from within. Yes. You have to be so convinced of the rightness of your position that you are willing to sacrifice so many years of your life to produce one worthwhile work. But there is no glory and glamour attached to the hard work. Yes, but the thing is that uh, it is not just this desire but also competence. Yes. Okay, you need to have a certain intellectual competence. People are actually a lot of mediocre people. So yes. there is a mediocrity in the IQ and in basically their ability to hold a logical argument is not there. So, but they want the limelight without putting in the tapasya. And the other point that I have noticed is that, you know, uh, today for example, they have no idea of the intellectual work that is being done and which they have to refute. Yes. The purva paksha of the opponent. So, I have, we have a huge problem. Let's say we want to have 10 tracks, 10 panels on the works of Pollock. Yes. Uh, we have a call for paper. We are willing to incentivize, we are willing to give stipends. Most of the t typical Hindu type people haven't read it, don't want to read it, yes. but they are full of opinions. So, what I told one of them, I said that you are aware of Irfan Habib, etc. But the point is, what about the next generation of Western scholars who are continuing the work of these people? That's correct. So I said that the second generation of left scholars in India may be opting out of this ideological battle and doing hardcore research on purely academic small themes. But there is a new generation of Western scholars who produce so much work. Don't you think you have to counter that? Yes. But they don't, they don't even know the names. Because there is laziness. There is laziness, there is incompetence, they are not well read. And they are more interested in quickly getting in the good books of the political establishment to get up. No, and just because... And there is a lot of uh, desire to poach and plagiarize and pluck ideas from here and there, write a new blog, write an article. I face that all the time. I don't see much evidence of their writing. What I feel is that they want to just capture some post. Yeah, but I see a lot of things I write. Yeah. Uh, the same people who come and praise and are very happy, mm. then they go off on their, in their own name without giving any reference, yeah. copying the same thing. And in order to get ahead uh, in, in, this, in a very knowledge-starved uh, political structure, Hindu political structure, very, very knowledge-starved, star research-starved. So there are people who want to fill that vacuum, get ahead. So this is a problem. But I am really surprised at how uh, the Hindus have become so enfeebled intellectually. Yes. Because uh, my study of history shows that even under the most adverse 
situations and adverse circumstances hindus were dynamic they were dynamic yes. they knew how to handle every situation yes. and to preserve their identity or their culture what they regarded as their culture or their heritage they were conscious of it and uh, but now uh, i i find enfeeblement of the hindu mind if i can put yeah. it that way. yeah i called it uh, called it the moronization mm. of the hindus so the, i mean the hindu morons so intellectually there is uh, that much awareness is not there so one we are developing a future swadeshi indology series a series on refuting these historians that need to be refuted so we we want to go beyond palak so we can pick uh, ramila thapar we can pick irfan habib we can pick uh, their students we can pick a certain school or a couple of schools of thought and have call for papers and bring in encourage new young scholars to take that on do you think that's something interesting yes yeah. certainly you think there's there's because target. you have made so much contribution yes to no, writing no. A, uh, you know no, narrative no, but, yeah but I, what i'm saying is uh, let's say we want to create uh, scholars mm -hmm. and we want to target have a targeted topic mm -hmm. so we want to get the best brains of young historians in india political mm -hmm. thinkers in india young people mm -hmm. and we want to have a focused approach so what what are some of the targets that of research that are not being done that you think are very important no there is so much research to be done on every topic right uh, but my uh, own experience of all these decades in delhi university and being part of an academic system is that i don't find any uh, young scholar who's beginning her or his research are willing to touch these topics what are the ones no any of these topics which should concern us as a civilization so and me, as a culture give me a few i'm like big talking ones. about iconoclasm for example okay you know okay uh, then uh, uh, you know what i mean i can give i mean i have to think but there are so many that one can uh, you know see my style has been uh, and they will not have the courage to uh, you know take on uh, people like romila thapar okay that's uh, my style my style no, is to go no after question, them because the point is that in the universities all the professors who trained by them are are the ones who are going to sit for their interviews for the jobs right right and they so they stand out then you off with your head they're you know, part that of that parampara so see also uh, hmm. the hindu the new government doesn't understand the internal politics and dynamics of how these institutions work hmm. that uh, you know there's a whole parampara being built of these leftist historians hmm. and just planting a few mediocre hindu guys in there is going to do nothing it doesn't do anything yeah because the point is that you have to have an agenda you have to have people with ideas you have to have people who have done work so we're going to do a conference on uh, taking back tamil nadu from the dravidianism yes and we got archaeological evidence we have nagaswami professor working with us so we're going to put in a lot of linguistic archaeological yes. historical yes. evidence to refute the dravidianism that's a yes. conference we're going to do yes. we're going to do another one agamas and in that can i just say one thing that the missionaries had a very important role to play of course they still have huh. they are still very yeah. active another one is on agamas mm -hmm. because agamas have been ignored and is the largest body of hindu text so we're going to do one there then we're going to take on some indian uh, rather than western we're going to take on some indian historians mm -hmm. group of them and you know the type of names that you mentioned are on our target we want to do something on india's national security threats yes. as a result of these foreign breaking Absolutely. breaking india forces that yes. as we call them so we're going to take that on then there is on uh, economic theories from indian uh, traditional sources like arthashastra yeah. economic political theories and whether and the applicable applicability today like yes. professor vaidyanath writes a lot so yes. he's on our yes. advisory board he's going to take the lead on that yes. and we're going to think about 
uh, Vedic uh, environmentalism. Yeah. What are some of the Vedic practices that could be of use today? Yes. Uh, as opposed to the chemical-based yeah. uh, yeah. you know economy we have. Yeah. So these are some of the things we are doing. Each one of them is so important. Yes. yes, it's a huge amount of work. Absolutely. I mean, you got to, you know you're not going to get existing scholars who've done a lot of research. You, you have got to, to find really you, find. You got to and you got to invest in. Multiple year projects. Like a needle in a haystack. No, but we're not just finding. Yeah. It's like planting, new. planting fruit trees yes. that will bear fruit many years yes. from now. Yes. So that's the work we're trying to yes. do. Thank you. So and wish you all the best. Yes, on yes. That. So I just want people to know so that they don't uh, confuse. Uh, Meenakshi Jane is a very different person from her sister. You know, uh, who's a she's another a another. She's another well-known person. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. Um, She's attacking me all the time, okay. all the time for no reason, okay. and kind of, kind of a crazy attacks. For you know, if I were to give her the importance, uh, Sandhya Jain is the per person I'm talking about. Uh, if I were to give importance, it just feeds it frenzy. It's like obsessiveness. So I ignore it, and then about after eight or ten or twenty, one post after the other, she it depletes, or somebody else comes and. Tells her to shut up, mm -hmm. but then and she's quiet for a year or two, and then some bug comes up, you know, and then she just goes on. So she uh, people really think that she's gone crazy, mm -hmm. and I also kind of tend to agree with that because there's no logic to this. Um, so I just want people to know that Minakshi is a very different person, a very level-headed, cool-headed, rational person who's produced a lot very quietly, and not to mix up the two. And so don't put out a lot of comments. Uh, on the discussion board, <laughs> just because you know Sandhya is a problem case, because Minakshi is not. So I, I just want to clarify that. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. Thank you so and, much. And uh, hopefully we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Uh, you uh, uh, participated in our Sheldon Pollock conference, yes. uh, presented a wonderful paper, and I want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. To help me, you can do two things. You can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Uh, secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button. You can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.